Hello, it's June the 6th. Today we are going to be reading a story that neither of us have read before. It's called The Garden of Forking Paths. It's written by George Louis Borges in 1941. And before we get started, let me just say that we're only going to read the story and then another episode we will do a discussion of the story. But I wanted to send a shout out to some of our subscribers. Um, this is Pride Month, and we have some we have some proud subscribers. There's Amos and Austin here in Dallas, and I have a very very good former student, Johnny John John, who um, lives in Houston, Texas. He was a fabulous student of mine at St. Pius the Tenth High School all full of Catholic crazies. Um, also, there is another subscriber, Austin, who is here in Dallas and his buddy, Kyle Whitaker. And um, we have two other subscribers, April and Martin. And Martin Fierro is actually Argentine, uh, as is Borges. And his wife, April, her last name is Ocampo. So, um, I'm going to go ahead and start with the title, The Garden of Forking Paths by George Louis Borges for Victor Ocampo. Now you can read. Okay, thank you. I didn't know you wanted me to take over. Thank you very much. Um, on page 22 of Liddell's Heart, History of World War One. You will read that an attack against the Sierra Mount Bonne line by 13 British divisions supported by 1400 artillery pieces planned for the 24th of July 1916 had to be postponed until the morning of 29th. The torrential rains, Captain Liddell Hart comments, caused this delay, an insignificant one to be sure. The following statement dictated, re-read, and signed by Dr. Yu Tsun, former professor of English at the Hochschule at Tsingtao, throws an unsuspected light over the whole affair. The first two pages of the documents are missing. And I hung up the receiver. Immediately afterwards, I recognized the voice that had answered in German. It was that of Captain Richard Madden. Madden's presence in Victor Runeberg's apartment meant the end of our anxieties, but this seemed, or should have seemed, very secondary to me. Also, the end of our lives. It meant that Runeberg had been arrested or murdered. Then there's a footnote, a hypothesis both hateful and odd. The Prussian spy Hans Robiner, alias Victor Runeberg, attacked with drawn automatic the bearer of the warrant for his arrest, Captain Richard Madden. The latter, in self-defense, inflicted the wound which had brought Runeberg's death. Editor's note. Now back, back to the story. Before the sun had set that day, I would encounter the same fate. Madden was implacable, or rather he was obliged to be so. An Irishman 
in the service of England, a man accused of laxity and perhaps of treason. How could he fail to seize and be thankful for such a miraculous opportunity, the discovery, capture, maybe even the death of two agents of the German Reich? I went up to my room. Absurdly, I locked the door and threw myself on my back on a narrow iron cot. Through the window, I saw the familiar roofs, the cloud-shaded six o'clock sun. It seemed incredible to me that the day without premonitions or symbols should be the one of my inexorable death. In spite of my dead father, in spite of having been a child in the symmetrical garden of high thing, was I now going to die? Then I reflected that everything happens to a man precisely now. Centuries of centuries and only in the present do things happen. Countless men in the air and on the face of the earth and the sea and all that really is happening, happening to me. The almost intolerable recollection of Madden's horse-like face banished these wanderings. Can you read a little bit now? In the midst of my hatred and terror, it means nothing to me now to speak of terror now that I have mocked Richard Madden, now that my throat yearns for the noose. It occurred to me that tumultuous and doubles happy warrior didn't suspect that I possessed the secret. The name of the exact location of the new bridge, Chartillery Park and the River Anchor. A bird streaked across the gray sky and blindly I translated it into an airplane, and that airplane into many against the French sky, annihilating the artillery station with vertical bombs. If only my mouth before a bullet shattered it, could cry out that secret name so it could be heard in Germany. My human voice was very weak. How might I make it carry to the ear of the chief, to the ear of that sick and hateful man who knew nothing of Runeberg, and me save that we were in Staffordshire and who was waiting in vain for a report in his arid office in Berlin, endlessly examining newspapers. I said out loud, I must see. I set up noiselessly in a useless perfection of silence, as if Madden were already lying in wait for me. Something, perhaps the mere vain ostentation of proving my resources were nil, made me look through my pockets. I found what I knew I would find. The American watch, the nickel chain and a square coin, a key ring with the incriminating useless keys to Runenberg's apartment, a notebook, a letter which I resolved to destroy immediately, and which I did not destroy. A crown, two shillings and a few pence, the red and blue pencil, the handkerchief, the revolver with one bullet. Absurdly, I took it in my hand and weighed it in order to inspire courage within myself. Vaguely, I thought that a pistol report can be heard at a great distance. In ten minutes, my plan was perfected. The telephone book listed the name of the only person capable of transmitting the message. He lived in a suburb of Fenton, less than half an hour's train ride away. I'm a cowardly man, 
I say it now, now that I have carried to its end plan whose perilous nature no one can deny. I know its execution was terrible. I didn't do it for the German, for Germany. No, I didn't care anything for that barbarous country, which imposed upon me the objection of being a spy. Besides, I know of a man from England, a modest man, who for me is no less than Goethe. I talked to him for scarcely an hour, but during that hour he was Goethe. I did it because I sensed that the chief somehow feared people of my race, for the innumerable ancestors who merged within me. I wanted to prove to him that a yellow man could save his armies. Besides, I had to flee from Captain Madden. His hands and his voice could call at my door at any moment. I dressed silently, bade farewell to myself in the mirror, went down the stairs, scrutinized the peaceful street, and I went out. The station was not far from my home, but I judged it was wise to take a cab. I argued that in this way I ran less risk of being recognized, and the fact that in the deserted street I felt myself visible and vulnerable, infinitely so. I remember that I told the cab driver to shop a sh stop a short distance before the main entrance. I got out with voluntary, almost painful slowness. I was going to the village of Ash Grove, but I bought a ticket for a more distant station. The train left within a few minutes at 8.30, 8.50. I hurried. The next one would leave at 9.30. There was hardly a, set, a soul on the platform. I went through the coaches. I remember a few farmers, a woman dressed in mourning, a young boy who was reading with fervor the annals of Tacitus, a wounded and happy soldier. The coaches jerked forward at last. A man who I recognized ran in vain to the end of the platform. It was Captain Richard Madden, shattered, trembling. I shrank into the far corner of the seat away from the dreaded window. From this broken state, I passed into an almost abject felicity. I told myself that the duel had already begun and that I had won the first encounter by frustration, even for 40 minutes, even if by a stroke of fate, the attack of my adversary. I argued that the slightest of victories foreshadowed a total victory. I argued, no less fallaciously, that my cowardly felicity proved that I was a man capable of carrying out the adventure successfully. From this weakness, I took strength that didn't abandon me. I foresee that man will resign himself each day to more atrocious undertakings. Soon, there will be no one but warriors and brigands. I give them this counsel. The author of an atrocious undertaking ought to imagine that he has already accomplished it, ought to impose upon himself a future as irrevocable as the past. Thus I proceeded as my eyes of a man already dead registered the elapsing of the day, which was perhaps the last, and the diffusion of the night. The train ran gently along amid ash trees. It stopped almost in the middle of the fields. No one announced the name of the station. Ashgrove, 
I asked a few lads on the platform. Ash Groff, they reply. I got off. A lamp enlightened the platform, but the faces of the boys were in shadow. One questioned me, are you going to Dr. Stephen Albert's house? Without waiting for my answer, another one said, the house is a long way from here. But you won't get lost if you take this road to the left and at every crossroad, turn again to your left. I tossed them a coin, my last, descended a few steps, started down the solitary road. It went downhill slowly. It was of elemental earth. Overhead, the branches were tangled. The low, full moon seemed to accompany me. For an instant, I thought that Richard Madden in some way had penetrated my desperate plan. Very quickly, I understood that it was impossible. The instructions to always turn to the left reminded me that such was the common procedure for discovering the central point of certain labyrinths. I have understood, I have some understanding of labyrinths. Not for nothing am I the great grandson of Sui Pen, who was the governor of Yunnan and who renounced worldly power in order to write a novel, that it might be even more populous than Hung Lu Meng, and to construct a labyrinth in which all men would become lost. Thirteen years he dedicated to these tasks, but the hand of a stranger murdered him, and his novel was incoherent, and found no one found his labyrinth. Beneath the English trees, I meditated on this lost maze. I imagined it inviolate, perfect, in the secret crest of the mountain. I imagined it erased by rice fields or beneath the water. I imagined it infinite, no longer composed of octagonal kiosks and returning paths, but of rivers and provinces and kingdoms. I thought of a labyrinth of labyrinths, of one sinuous spreading labyrinth that would encompass the past and the future and in some way involve the stars. Absorbed in these illusory images, I forgot my destiny of one pursued. I felt myself for an unknown period of time. Turn the page. An abstract perceiver of the world, the vague living countryside, the moon, the remains of the day worked on me, as well as the slope of the road, which eliminated any possibility of weariness. The afternoon was intimate, infinite, the road descended and forked among the now confused meadows. A high-pitched, almost syllabic music approached and receded in the shifting of the wind, dimmed by leaves and distance. I thought that a man can be the enemy of other people, of the moments of other men, but not of a country not of fireflies, words, gardens, streams of water, sunsets. Thus I arrived before a tall, rusty gate. 
Between the iron bars, I made out poplar grove and a pavilion. I understood suddenly two things. The first trivial, the second almost unbelievable. The music came from the pavilion and the music was Chinese. For precisely that reason I had openly accepted it without paying it any heed. I don't remember whether there was a bell or whether I knocked with my hand. The sparkling of the music continued. From the rear of the house, within a lantern approach, a lantern that the trees sometimes striped, sometimes eclipsed, a paper lantern that had the form of a drum and the color of the moon. Tall man bore it. I didn't see his face, for the light blinded me. He opened the door and said slowly, in my own language, I see that the pious Xi Piang persists in correcting my solitude. You no doubt wish to see the garden. I recognized the name of one of our councils, and I replied disconcerted, The garden, the garden of Fork and Path. Something stirred in my memory. I uttered with incomprehensible certainty, The garden of my ancestor, Sius Pian. Your ancestor, your illustrious ancestor, come in. The damp path zigzagged like those of my childhood. We came to a library of Eastern and Western books. I recognized bound in yellow silk several volumes of the lost encyclopedia, edited by the third emperor of the luminous dynasty, but never printed. The record and the phonograph revolved next to a bronze phoenix. I also recall family rose vase and another, many centuries older, of that shade of blue which our craftsmen copied from the potters of Persia. Stephen Albert observed me with a smile. He was, as I have said, very tall, sharp-featured, with gray eyes and a gray beard. He told me that he had been a missionary in Tianjin before aspiring to become a sinologist. We sat down, I on a long, narrow divan, he with his back to the window, a and a tall circular clock. I calculated that my pursuer, Richard Madden, could not arrive for at least an hour. My irrevocable determination could wait. An astounding fate that Chu Pen, Albert said, governor of this native province, learned in astronomy and astrology and the tireless interpretations of the canonical books chess player, famous poet, calligrapher. He abandoned all this in order to compose a book and a maze. He renounced the pleasures of both tyranny and justice. Out of his populous couch, out of his banquets and even erudition, all to close himself up for 13 years in the pavilion of the limpid solitude. When he died, his heirs found nothing except chaotic manuscripts. His family, as you may be aware, wished to condemn them to fire. But his executor, a Taoist or Buddhist monk, insisted on the publications. We, descendants of Chu Pen, I replied, continue to curse that monk. The publication was senseless. The book is an indeterminate heap of contradictory drafts. I examined it once. In the third chapter, the hero dies. 
In the fourth chapter, he's alive. As for the other undertakings, his labyrinth, <sighs> here is Chu Pen's labyrinth, he said, indicating a tall, lacquered desk. An ivory labyrinth, I exclaimed. A minimum labyrinth. It's a labyrinth of symbols, he corrected. An invisible labyrinth of time. To me, the barbarous Englishman had been entrusted the revelation of this diaphanous mystery. After more than a hundred years, the details are irretrievable, but it is not hard to conjecture what happened. Chu Pei must have said once, I'm withdrawing to write a book. And another time he said, I'm withdrawing to construct a labyrinth. Everyone imagined these two works. To no one did it occur that the book and the maze were one and the same thing. The pavilion of limpid solitude stood at the center of the garden that was perhaps intricate, that circumference could have suggested to the heirs of the physical labyrinth. Chin Tzu died, no one in the vast territories where he that he were his, came upon the labyrinth. The confusion of the novel suggested to me that it was the maze. Two circumstances gave me the correct solution to the problem. One, the curious legend that Xu Pei had planned to create a labyrinth which would be strictly infinite. The other, a fragment of a letter I discovered. Albert rose. He turned his back on me for a moment. He opened the drawer of the black and gold desk. He faced me, and in his hands he held a sheet of paper that had once been crimson, but was now pink and tenuous and cross-sectioned. The fame of Tzu Pien as a calligrapher had been justly won. I read, uncomprehendingly and with fervor, this words written with a minute brush by a man of my blood. I live to the various futures, not to all, my garden of fork and path. Wordlessly I returned this sheet. Albert continued, Before unearthing this letter, I had questioned myself about the ways in which a book can be infinite. I could think of nothing other than a cyclic volume, circular one, a book whose last page was identical with the first, a book which had the possibility of continuing indefinitely, I remember, too, that night which is in the middle of the thousand and one nights when Shakir Rizadi, through magical oversight of the copyist, begins to relate word for word the story of the thousand and one nights, establishing the risk of coming once again to the night when she must repeat it, and thus unto infinity. I imagined as well as the platonic hereditary work transmitted from father to son in which each new individual adds a chapter or corrects with the pious care the pages of his elders. These conjectures diverted me, but none seemed to correspond, not even remotely, to the contradictory chapters of Tzu Pien. In the midst of this perplexity I received from Oxford the manuscript you have examined. I lingered naturally on the sentence. I lived to the various futures, not to all my garden of forking path, Almost instantly I understood the garden of Fork and Fast was the chaotic novel, 
the phrase, the various futures, not to all suggested to me the forking in time, not in space. A broad re-reading of the work confirmed the theory. In all fictional works, each time a man is confronted with several alternatives, he chooses one and eliminates the other. In the fiction of Tzu Qian, he chooses simultaneously all of them. He creates in this way diverse futures, diverse times which themselves also proliferate and fork. Here, then, is the explanation of the novel's contradictions. Fang, let us say, has a secret. A stranger calls at his door. Fang resolves to kill him. Naturally, there are several possible outcomes. Fang can kill the intruder. The intruder can kill Fang. They both can escape. They both can die, and so forth. In the work of Tzu Pian, all possible outcomes occur. Each one is the point of departure from the other forkings. Sometimes the paths of this labyrinth converge. For example, you arrive at this house. But in one of the possible paths, you are my enemy. In another, my friend. If you will resign yourself to my incurable pronunciation, we shall read a few pages. His face <clears throat> within the vivid circle of the lamplight was unquestionably that of an old man, but with something unalterable about it, even immortal. He read with slow precision two versions of the same epic chapter. In the first, an army marches to a battle across a lonely mountain. The horror of the rocks and the shadows makes the men undervalue their lives and they gain an easy victory. In the second, the same army traverses a palace where a great festival is taking place. The resplendent battle seems to them a continuation of the celebration and they win the victory. I listened with proper veneration to these ancient narratives, perhaps less admirable in themselves than the fact that they had been created by my blood and were being restored to me by a man of a remote empire in the course of a desperate adventure on a Western Isle. I remembered the last words repeated in each version like a secret commandment. Thus fought the heroes, tranquil their admirable hearts, violent their swords, resigned to kill and to die. From that moment on, I felt about me and within my dark body an invisible, intangible swarming. Not the swarming of the divergent, parallel and finally coalescent armies, but more inaccessible, more intimate agitation that they in some manner prefigured. Stephen Albert continued, I don't believe that your illustrious ancestor played idly with these variations. I don't consider it credible that he would sacrifice 13 years to the infinite execution of a rhetorical experiment in your country. The novel is a subsidiary form of literature. In Xu Pian's time, it was a despicable form. Xu Pian was a brilliant novelist, but he was also a man of letters who doubtless didn't consider himself a mere novelist. The testimony of his contemporaries proclaims, and his life fully confirms, his metaphysical and mystical interests. Philosophic controversy usurps a good part of the novel. I know that of all problems, 
non disturbed him so greatly nor worked upon him so much at the abysmal problem of time. Now then, the latter is the only problem that doesn't figure in the pages of the garden. He doesn't even use the word that signifies time. How do you explain this voluntary omission? I proposed several solutions, all unsatisfactory. We discussed them. Finally, Stephen Albert said to me, in a riddle whose answer is chess, what is the only prohibited word? I thought for a moment and replied, the word chess. Precisely, said Albert, the garden of forking paths is an enormous riddle or parable whose theme is time. This recondite clause prohibits its mention. To omit a word always to resort to inept metaphors and obvious paraphrases is perhaps the most emphatic way of stressing it. That is the tortuous method preferred in each of the meanderings of this indefatigable novel by the oblique Chu Pen. I have compared hundreds of manuscripts. I have corrected the errors that negligence of the copyist had introduced. I have guessed the plan of this chaos. I have reestablished, I believe I have reestablished the primordial organization. I have translated the entire work. It is clear to me that not once does he employ the word time. That explanation is obvious. The garden of forking paths is incomplete, but not false. Image of the universe as Chu Ping conceived it. In contrast to Newton and Schopenhauer, your ancestor did not believe in uniform absolute time. He believed in an infinite series of times in growing dizzy net of divergent, convergent, and parallel times. The network of times which approached one another forked, broke off, or were unaware of one another for centuries, embracing all possibilities of time. We do not exist in the majority of these times, in some you exist, not I, in others I, not you, in others both of us. In the present one, which a favorable fate had granted me, you have arrived at my house. In another one, while crossing the garden, you found me dead. In another one, I utter these same words, but I am a mistake, a ghost. In every one, I pronounced, not without a tremble to my voice, I am grateful to you and revere you for your recreation of the garden of Tsupian. Not in all, he murmured with a smile. Time works perpetually toward innumerable futures. In one of them I am your enemy. Once again I felt this warming sensation of which I have spoken. It seemed to me that the humid garden that surrounded the house was infinitely saturated with invisible persons. Those persons were Albert and I secret, busy, and multiform in other dimensions of time. I raised my eyes, and the tenuous nightmare dissolved. In the yellow and black garden there was only one man, but this man was as strong as a statue. This man was approaching along the path, and he was Captain Richard Madden. 
The future already exists, I replied. But I am your friend. Could I see the letter again? Albert rose. Standing tall, he opened the drawer of the tall desk. For the moment his back was to me. I had ready the revolver. I fired with extreme caution. Albert fell uncomplainingly, immediately. I swear his death was instantaneous, a lightning stroke. The rest is unreal, insignificant. Madden broke in, arrested me. I've been condemned to the gallows. I have won out abominably. I have communicated to Berlin the secret name of the city they must attack. They bombed it yesterday. I read it in the same papers that offered to England the mystery of the learned sinologist Stephen Albert, who was murdered by a stranger, one Yu Chen. The chief had deciphered this mystery. He knew my problem was to indicate, through the uproar of the war, the city called Albert. And I found no other means to do this than to kill a man of that name. He does not know, no one can know, my innumerable contrition and weariness.